We will be stepping away from our look in the Psalms, and we will be in Mark chapter 6 today. As we start, i got a pop quiz for you. Can anybody tell me what miracle, besides the resurrection, is recorded in all four Gospels? Huh? It's the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is found in every one of the Gospels. It's this pretty well-known story where Jesus essentially takes lunch for somebody and feeds a multitude, thousands and thousands of people with it. But did you know that's not the only miracle that Jesus did that day? Because it tells us that he also healed people. And whether you realize it or not, there's actually another miracle that Jesus did that same night. It's a miracle that many of us are aware of, but not one that we often realize took took place at the same time. And this miracle took place in front of a much smaller audience. And that's the miracle we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. So just kind of the context of what has happened that leading up to this day and the day that happened, or the day um, that Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus and the disciples are like just being overrun with people, right? Like they can't even get alone to share a meal together. And so Jesus says, let's get into the boat and let's go to the other side of the sea. Well, let's go to a desolate place where we can be alone. But as they go to the other side of the sea, a crowd follows them. And as the crowd goes, the crowd grows. And so when they get there, it's not a desolate place with no one there. Instead, there are thousands and thousands of people that are waiting for them. But instead of becoming angry, instead of turning around to go back yet again to the other side of the sea, Instead of dispersing them, Jesus looks on them. He says he has compassion on them because he looks like, man, y'all are like a sheep without a shepherd. So he enters in with them and he teaches them. He heals them and he feeds them. But what happened after that? That's what we're going to look at tonight, this morning. And what I want us to do is I want us to try to put put ourselves in the place of the disciples so that we can see that just as Jesus did with the disciples, so he does with us. And he gives us opportunities to learn what does it mean to really trust him. And the second thing is to see how Jesus brings confidence into our chaos. So this is a very non-Presbyterian sermon because we have two points, and those are them. Jesus gives us opportunity to learn and to trust, and Jesus brings confidence into our chaos. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52 will be our text. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now he meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God that he has given to us because he loves us. And these words are true. All right. Let's see. Let's see if anybody knows what these are. I'm going to name. I'm going to give some names. And I want you to tell me if you know what these are types of. The Pratt, the Shelby, 
the Nikki, the Windsor, the Oriental, the Prince Albert, the Trinity, the Kelvin, the Onassis, the Cape, the Foreign Hand, the Fishbone. Does anybody know what these are? Knots, ties, yes. These are all different knot. Man, y'all are way more cultured than me. I had to look all these up. I had no idea. So like these are all different ways that you can, all different knots you can use to tie a necktie. And whether, no matter who you are, like this is just kind of a handy thing in life to know. How do you tie a tie? Like I've gone to do weddings before and stood in a room of like five dudes. They're all like ties draped around them with this little kid look on their face. And so like I have to go around and tie all their ties right? Like someone should have come alongside them dudes as children. But this is a handy thing to know. How do you tie a tie? I remember whenever I was a kid, every Sunday, my dad would go to this overflowing rack of like mostly hideous ties. And he would emerge out of the room with the chosen one of the day. He would drape it around his neck, stand in front of the bathroom mirror, and he would proceed to tie the exact same knot that he always did week after week. Whenever I was little, I, I wanted to dress like my dad. If you've ever met my dad, you will be pleased to know I no longer desire to do this. But back then, I thought like he was a, he was a sharp-dressed guy for church, right? And so I wanted to be like him. So my parents bought me some clip-on ties. But then once I you know, was far too sophisticated for such things, they bought me the real deal. And the first Sunday, I remember, I go into the bathroom with my tie drapes around my neck. And my dad stands behind me, right? He stands behind me, puts his arms around me. And he, he ties the tie. But as he does it, he's instructing me, like, this is how you do it. It's like, sweet. At the end of the day, I loosened it up. I took it off, and I hung it on the door. My dad's like, no, man, you untie that thing. You untie that tie. It's not going to get creased. We'll tie it again. It, it'll be okay. All right, whatever. So the next week, tie around the neck, waltz into the bathroom. He's like, good. Now tie it. What do you mean you tie it? I don't know how to tie it. It's like some weird voodoo magic you work to get that thing to be right. And so it's not hanging down to my knees. And so the short end shorter. He's like, no, man, it, it's going to be all right. I'm not going to do it for you, but I will instruct you how to do it. And I was a little heated because I didn't know how. But to my dad's credit, he actually stood his ground. He's like, no, 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 you are going to do this. I am not going to do it for you. Why did he do that? Because in that moment, my dad was like, this is an opportunity for you to learn how to do something. This is an opportunity for you to learn how to do something that's going to be handy for you to know for the rest of your life. In our text today, Jesus is doing something similar, though, let's be real, it matters a lot more, right? Jesus here sees an opportunity to teach his disciples something. Like, look, you need to learn this thing because for the rest of your life, this is something that you are going to need to know. This is something you are going to need to rely on. Look at what it says in verse 45. What does it tell us about that night? It says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go back to the other side. Jesus is the one that sends the disciples out, and he does so for a specific purpose, so that they might learn what does it really mean in the storms of life to trust in Jesus. In the time that he had been with, him, with them, Jesus would have been instructing them and telling them, like, look, this is who I am. He would be teaching them not only with his words, but also by acts and wonders, what we would call miracles. Jesus would say these words, but then he would do these acts, these great things that could not be explained by normal causes. And it would give credence to what he had said. It would give more weight to the words that he had said. And so Jesus here is like, okay, I've been teaching you. Now let's see what it looks like to put it into practice. 
Jesus sends them out that night. He dismisses the crowd. And then he goes up on the mountain to do what he had wanted to do earlier in the day, to be alone and to pray. And as Jesus is up on the mountain and the disciples are out on the sea, this great storm rolls in. Because of where the Sea of Galilee is, it's prone to have these like really violent storms move in fast and unexpectedly. And even though we don't know exactly where they're at on the sea, the Sea of Galilee, we know, is pretty large. At its longest point, it's about 13 miles across. Now, as you think about being caught out on, out on the sea in a storm, it's important to remember who these dudes are. It's not like getting stuck out in a storm with me, right? Because that would be bad. Like, we would most certainly drown. But these guys are not me. These guys are experienced sailors, right? Like, many of these guys are professional fishermen by trade. They make their money being in a boat on this sea. And fishermen also fished at night. So a storm at night on this sea, man, this is their thing. It's going to be okay, right? They would know how to navigate these storms. But verse 48 tells us, like, yeah, they're making headway, but they're doing so painfully because this storm is bad and they are struggling. And after hours and hours of rowing and fighting against this storm, they no doubt feel like we are going nowhere. It's a feeling we get, right? You ever felt like, dude, I am fighting hard to go absolutely nowhere? Like... You ever had a relationship you're in and you're like, I'm fighting really hard to make this thing like move forward and it's not doing anything. If you're a parent, you ever, um, you ever had a kid you feel like you're getting nowhere with, like they continue to do the same thing over and over and no matter how you discipline them, no matter how much you reassure them they don't need to do this thing that they're loved and all that junk, and no matter how you counsel them or whatever it is, it's like this is going nowhere. Maybe you feel like in your relationship with God, it's the same way. I'm trying here. And I feel like I have not grown a bit. We know this feeling, right? I'm going nowhere. Now, sometimes that feeling is actually made even worse when it's like somebody acknowledges that they see us and then kind of dismiss it. Like, oh, yeah, everybody goes through that. You'll be fine. Get you. Because no matter how our struggles may look to someone else, for us, oftentimes, it's all we can see, right? Like, it completely encompasses our entire universe. We feel like there is no way out of the situation we're in. Like, there is no way to get beyond this point where we feel stuck. In this moment, I wonder if this is how the disciples felt. Did they feel like there's no way out? Did they feel like they would be stuck out in the middle of the sea? Like, the only land they would ever touch would be the bottom of the sea whenever they drowned. They feel like they would never make the shore. Do you think in those moments it ever crossed their mind like, I bet Jesus sent us out here to teach us something? Probably not. Because despite the fact we sometimes want to think these dudes are uber spiritual, read the Gospels and they will change your mind. Probably never crossed their mind. We never thought, yeah, Jesus is trying to show us the situation's out of our depth, but it's not out of his. But what about you? Is that how you think? Whenever 
situations in life are hard. Whenever the storms come, whenever you feel stuck, do you think, man, I bet God has put me here so that I can learn how to place my faith and trust in Him, the one who sees my troubles and cares for me. Because oftentimes, man, it takes a conscious stopping. And we're not good at that. But you know, just as Jesus sent the disciples out to sea, knowing they would face this storm, he sends us out into life knowing we will face hardships, right? We'll face hardships like being surrounded by people and feeling like we have no friends. We will face hardships like being betrayed by those we thought were close to us and cared for us. We'll face hardships like not getting into the school we wanted, not getting the job we wanted, getting those things only to realize they don't fulfill us. Um, we'll face hardships like not getting to be with the person we want to be with, not seeing the person we loved healed, not feeling loved by our family, facing doubts like doubting and wondering like, are the things that I've always believed, are they actually true? We face hardships like this and countless others. Like, I mean, what is yours? Like we all, we all face them all the time. What hardship do you face now? Because whatever it is, man, God is not unaware of it. And it's not beyond his ability to use it for good. These are often the times we grow the most. I can look back over the past 10 years. And it's a good marker because that's how long I've been married. I can look back over the past 10 years and be like, dude, hardships as a couple are where Don and I have grown the most. And as individuals, we can look back like, yeah, that season we grew the most. And it was the most painful that we've ever had. They're circumstances that aren't fun. They're not things that you hope for. They're not things you would wish on other people. But you know what? They all have a purpose. So in my uh, other job, I work in a machine shop, right? And oftentimes we will send out either like raw material or pieces that we've cut on some. And we will send them out to go get heat treated. And it is exactly how it sounds, right? Like you take material and you'll put it into an oven that's about 1,400 degrees, give or take. And the reason that you do that is actually because the molecular structure of that material gets realigned. And it's in order to make it harder and stronger and more resistant. Now this process, it does require extreme conditions, but the person that makes those things undergo that, they, they don't do it haphazardly. They do it because they know there is a purpose. In much the same way, the difficult situations of my life and yours uh, can be seen the same way that they serve a purpose, that God is using them to realign and change and form and shape us. But the question is, do we actually believe that? Do we see the circumstances of our life as tools in the hands of God? Do we see them as opportunities to learn to put our faith and trust in Him? You know, our outlook during these times can often be helped by reminding ourselves like, okay, God is at work. God is actually at work in this. You know an easy way to do that? Prayer. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be long prayers. It doesn't have to be new prayers. You can use the same one. It's okay to recycle prayers, people. It really is. But you know, simple prayers like, God, I trust. I don't know what you're putting me through, but I trust that you do. I trust that you are using this thing, that you want what's good for me. And that's why you are putting me through this. And asking God to give, man, give me faith to trust that you were using this to make me more like Jesus. It doesn't have to be hard. But 
You know what that does? That keeps you tethered to God in that time. It keeps that communication open. And it also reminds us, because we are confessing, I believe these things to be true. But sometimes you might need to say, God, I want this to be true. Give me the faith to believe that that's true, that you actually want what is good for me. These prayers don't mean that our situations will change, but it might help our outlook change. And that can make a difference in our attitude from day to day. So that evening, Jesus sends the disciples out onto the sea. He knows what's ahead of them. And from the mountaintop, he looks down and he sees their troubles. You know, sometimes it's encouraging to know that someone sees what we're going through and doesn't dismiss it as irrelevant or insignificant. Just to know that someone sees your struggles, to see the efforts that you're putting out. Think about, think about being one of the disciples in this boat, right? Think about what it would be like. Think about the day they'd already had. They've rowed across the sea. They have listened to Jesus teach, watched him heal. So like probably great emotional and spiritual highs. They have then helped serve thousands and thousands of people. They have then cleaned up what is left. And now they are back in the boat rowing and fighting against this storm. They probably in this moment are feeling like they are giving all the energy that they have left to give. They probably feel like no one sees what they are going through. Like I'm, I put myself in here. You know what I would be doing? I'd be looking at the guy in front of me and be like, that's it. That's all the harder you can go. Right? Because, and the guy behind me would be like, if they row like Jake, we are dying, right? But like, this is how I think I would feel. Like nobody sees how hard I'm working. Nobody sees the effort that I'm putting forward. Maybe some of them felt that way. But even though the disciples couldn't see him, Jesus could see them and their struggle. He could see these scared, overwhelmed, and helpless men. And in verse 48, look what it tells us. It tells us that in the fourth watch of the night, which means somewhere between like three and six in the morning, that Jesus began to make his way back across the sea. But not in a boat, because the boat he took was gone. But instead, he begins to walk across the water. And here's where we see a line that we need to be careful with, or else we, might, we, we could actually misunderstand what's going on. Because at the end of verse 48, it says... Jesus came by them, but that he meant to pass them by. And, you know, we might wonder, why would he do that? Why would he let them continue to struggle and not come to help? Like, he obviously has power over the water, right, due to the fact that he is walking on it. Which, aside, like, if you, do you ever picture the walking on the water and you picture it being, like, smooth? Like, somehow that makes it easier to walk on top of water. But, like, it talks about this raging storm. Is he, like, walking up the waves and, like, sliding back down? Is he making it calm as, right, for him? I don't know. It's fun to think about, right? Maybe not for y'all. It is for me. So, but think about, like, he has the power over the water. He is walking across it. But he means to pass them by. Why would he pass them by? You know what I think it is? I think he means to pass them by for this reason to serve as a visible reminder. Like, hey, the words I have said are true. Who I have said I am, this is your proof. And I am the one that you are to be trusting in. I am the one that has control over everything around you. The things you can see and the things that you can. In this moment, Jesus isn't trying to mock them. He's not trying to scare them. Rather, he is reminding them, 
I have control over everything, even these things that are beyond you and out of your depth. You know, he had actually done this earlier in the day when he fed the 5,000. Because the disciples had come to him like, hey, Jesus, it's time to wrap it up. Send these fools home so they can go get their food somewhere. And Jesus said, no, it's all right. You give them something to eat. And in that moment, they would realize this is a situation that is beyond my, our, my, our, all of our control. This, this is out of my depth. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't have the food to feed these people. And here again, Jesus is reminding them, hey, just like I fed all those people with one lunch, I can handle this situation too. He means to pass them by, to remind them, this is who I am, and I am the one that you are to be trusting in. He was reminding them, no matter what, no matter what you face, it's not beyond my sight, my understanding, or my control. Christian, he tells you the same thing non-Christian. He means to tell you the same thing. No matter what you're going through, I see it, I understand it, and I can use it, and it's not beyond my control. For all those that place their faith in Jesus, he tells us he is with us, just as he was with the disciples, and he is able to bring confidence even among our chaos. You know, in the ancient world, um, water represented chaos, and it kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? Like, they don't have GPS to know exactly where they're at, they don't have things like, you know, motors for their boats. They're limited to how far down they can go and explore. They don't know exactly like what's in the depths of the seas. Um, there were legends of sea monsters that would like drag ships down to the depths or of ginormous fish that would just eat ships whole. They don't have technology to track weather for when storms like this are rolling in. So like one bad storm can put you miles off a of course. The original audience, the people that would have first read this account, you know what they would think? Everything is screaming complete and utter chaos here. That's the feeling that we're meant to get. We are supposed to understand this is the most chaotic situation. This is like the most chaotic situation that the original audience could imagine. And in the middle of the storm, there's no doubt how the disciples are feeling. And now, to make matters worse, they look up and they see not huge waves, but a ghost. And they think, great, the situation has gone from bad to the worst that it could possibly be. Not only are they stuck in a storm, but now a ghost is coming after them. And it says they are terrified. And you know who else would be? You. Don't act big. You would be scared. And so would I. Like, here's something they don't have another explanation for. And let me remind you of something. You may have questions about the supernatural, wonder what it might look like, how that might work. These dudes don't because they have seen it firsthand. They have watched Jesus exercise demons before. They have seen them at work in their life. They know that the supernatural is real, and they're like, oh, good, and it's coming for us. Their chaos has escalated to the absolute max. And then out of that comes nine words that change everything. In verse 50, we get the only words that Jesus speaks here. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And in that moment, can you imagine the relief that those men, those men felt? Like, first of all, just to realize it's not a ghost, but second of all, to realize who it is. 
This is Jesus. This is the one that they have abandoned everything in their life to follow. This is the one who has done works that they have no category for. This is the one who they have literally staked their eternity on. It's not a ghost. It's Jesus. Jesus comforts them with his words. He gets into the boat with them. The storm stops and it tells us they're astounded. You know what the disciples are experiencing here? Fear. We get fear too, right? We know what it's like to be stuck. We know what it's like to be scared. Like that feeling you experience when something's stronger than you are, when it's more threatening than the resources you have. I mean, like, think, what are you afraid of? Snakes and spiders don't count, people. What are you afraid of at your core? You afraid of being judged by someone? Are you afraid of rejection? Are you afraid of loneliness? What is it? We're all scared of something. About this, what situation in your life right now feels just chaotic? What situation in your life do you feel like you have no control over? What do you think would bring confidence into the midst of that situation? For those disciples, it was the words and the presence of Jesus. Their situation was over their heads. It was beyond their control. But as they looked out, you know what they realized? What was over their heads? It was under the feet of Jesus. And whatever brings fear and chaos and complete and utter destruction, you may think, whatever that thing is that brings that into your life, it's no different. What is over your head and out of your control It is underneath the feet of Jesus. The Bible says it in different ways. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, it tells us that the Father has put in subjection all things under the feet of Jesus. Remember in the ancient world, water represented chaos. Listen to what the Psalms say. It says, The voice of the Lord is over the water. The God of glory thunder the Lord over many waters. Psalm 89, it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you are the one that stills them. Psalm 107 says, He makes the storms be still and the waves of the sea be hushed. There is nothing in all of creation that Jesus does not have control over. There's nothing in all of creation that Jesus doesn't stand over and be like, that is rightfully mine because I have made it and I am allowing it to continue to exist. That includes you and your situation that you are in, whatever it might be. What makes you feel out of control? What makes you scared? Would trusting, truly trusting in the one to whom all things are in subjection to, would it bring confidence into that? He's not only over all things, but for all those that put their faith and trust in him, it says he is using all things for our good. And knowing that should bring us confidence, regardless of what we might face. The Bible tells us Jesus performed his miracles to prove who he was and that what he said was true. Are you trusting in him and the words that he has said? If you're not a believer, then the answer to that question is no. But the invitation is open. Submit your life to the one who is over all things. Let him be your anchor, your refuge. Let him be the one who fights your battles for you. Christian, Are you trusting all things to him?
the things that bring chaos, does it make you feel like a little bit better or like you're in control if you just don't ask God for his help? Are you trusting in Jesus? And are you trusting him in all aspects of your life? If Jesus really is who he claims to be and really has the power that the Bible says he has, isn't our only right response to worship, submit to, and follow him? He loved the disciples and brought comfort and confidence to them in the midst of their fears and troubles. You're going to trust him to do the same for you. And when your faith is weak, will you ask him to strengthen it and wait for him in faith as he does? Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you that um, we thank you that you know our weakness and don't abandon us in it. We thank you that you haven't told us to get your stuff together and come see me after. But instead that you said, I will step into the midst of your fear and your chaos, in the midst of your doubt, in the midst of your suffering. And I will be an anchor for you. That I will bring hope where you feel there is none. Pray that you would strengthen our faith. Teach us what it means to trust you, to truly have faith in you in all of life's circumstances. We thank you that you are at work even whenever it's hard for us to believe it, when it's hard for us to see it. We thank you for these words. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.